0: Doing good, all right. It's good to see. It's good to see you guys with like in the flesh. Glad that you're here. Yes, fantastic. And we're also glad for those of you who are uh, joining us by live stream. Um, we get that. We're um, we're glad that that you're with us in that way. And I just want to say, when you're ready, we're here. So, those of you who are local, those of you who are local to the area. Uh, all right, so. Um, this morning, I'm going to, okay, so for some of you, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for the next few minutes, uh, because I know that also for some, this is like, yeah, exactly what I've been, you know, it's kind of one of those things, and I get that, and I, again, so that's my, um, that's my explainer right there in the beginning. Okay, so, um, as you might expect, I am in active conversation with folks, various folks near and far, um, about faith and God and Jesus and stuff, right? I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and so, and now, of course, today, these days with electronic communication, text message and Twitter and uh, email and all that, you know, you can be in lots of conversations with lots of people at one time. You guys all know how that, that goes. Uh, same same for me, except uh, in, in my case, in particular, uh, the theme of those conversations tends to be Jesus and stuff. Um, that's a long-standing family, family uh, Not I shouldn't say a joke. It's like a family story, you know. What was church about? Jesus and stuff. That's the story. All right. So, but theology, right, for me. Um, and so, and also, as you know, those of you who've been around here for a while, um, as you know, a theme of mine The song that I sing, the drum that I'm beating, the message that I'm declaring is that God is good and only good. Through and through, to the bone, God is good. Um, There is no retribution in God. God is not actually angry, violent, retributive. God is good. God is love. That's the song that I'm singing, the drum that I'm beating. And uh, as I have recently, more recently, begun to teach very publicly uh, through the, let's call it the theological shovel work, right, unearthing, um, that I basically expected that everyone either already appreciated or would immediately, would immediately appreciate. Um, for most folks, that's been true. But for some, there are some stubborn questions, some nagging questions. Uh, and the response goes like something like, hey, Lowell, yeah, I get it. I know, that, I know that God is good, God is love, all of that. But, and then comes like this, you know, um, well, one or more of what I'm calling sticking points to the basic idea, sticking points along, along the journey. And so this has become kind of a recurring pattern in my life these days with friends both near and far so this week a friend of mine uh, told me about a friend who he is leading through this same conversation and he shared with me my friend did shared with me some of the sticking points and questions that his buddy is sincerely asking Um, and in this particular case the sticking point is around questions about uh, the judgment of god Hey, hold on a minute, you know, um, aren't we supposed to be afraid of the judgment of God? Isn't it true that God's holiness is expressed through righteous, even wrathful judgment? That whole kind of question. So then you get this blend of images and dogma and maybe angry sermons from growing up, things like that. Um, And usually some scary sounding Bible verses mixed in for good measure. And the result is this wad that represents a fairly common sticking point. And certainly a sticking point in this person's uh, journey. And so, uh, you know, it's like, yes, I know that God is good and I want to dive in and swim in that ocean, but what about this, you know? And in this case, the what about sticking point um, is around a certain understanding of God's judgment. And so let's deal with it, right? Judgment. This is not the first time we've talked about this, but let's revisit some of these themes. The question as I'm posing it for this morning is, what are we talking about when we're talking about God's judgment? Uh, So the question is not, um, is there such a thing as God's judgment? The question is, what are we talking about when we're talking about God's judgment? And of course, we don't have to go very far in the language of the church, broadly speaking, church with a capital C. We don't have to go very far in the language of the church to encounter this theme, right? It's at the tail end. Of the creed, and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Many of us grew up stating uh, the creeds, and we do that around here occasionally as well. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. What are we talking about when we affirm statements like that? That's where I would like for us, for the next few minutes, to kind of focus our um, our study. And I want to begin with a statement. Uh, that is an attempt my attempt to forecast what I hope to be the end from the beginning I want to make a statement here at the beginning before we begin to study a statement that is I hope a brief description of the ultimate destination of this conversation and then I'm going to attempt over the next few minutes to sort of chart the course to how we get to that destination. So here's here's my statement as a, an attempt to briefly describe the destination. The more we truly know the character of God, the more we will eagerly crave the judgment of God. The more we understand the nature, the character, the personality of God, the more we will crave, yearn and long for the judgments the judgment of God. Okay, now, so that's what I hope is a brief description of the ultimate destination. Now, I want to back way up and start from a particular point, a point where I assume many of us are beginning from, and try to chart the course for how to get there. Okay, so first, let's start with word association, just plain old English word associations, right? So the word on the table is the word judgment. Now, I want to propose, although it's not the only context in which we use the word judgment, but most commonly, the word judgment uh, is at home within what I would call the law court family of metaphors, right? Um, again, judgment, the the word in English, the word judgment is not confined to that theater, but, but I think it's probably most at home in that family of metaphors. And let me back up a little bit. When I say, when I speak of metaphor families, what I mean, and I think it's important to kind of establish maybe a little bit broader context, when it comes to God talk, how we talk about God, how we talk about faith, how we talk about what God is like, about the divine human relationship, there are families, groups of metaphors, and these emerge from Scripture, um, that kind of work, kind of fit together. Like, for example, there's the, um, well, this is redundant sounding, but there's the, there's the family, the family of metaphors. (laughs) We talk about God in family terms, right? Like God is father, we are his children, sons and daughters, adoption, those kinds of words, kind of like, so that's the family family of metaphors. Um, And then there's what we might call the monarchy family of metaphors, like God is king, um, uh, we're seeking the kingdom of God, uh, those kinds of metaphors or servants of God, all those metaphors kind of come from what we might call the monarchy family. Um, And then, of course, there are the law court metaphors that we use to talk about God and talk about the divine human relationship. And within this family, God is judge, God gives laws, uh, violation of those laws is described as transgression, Um, and God the judge renders judgments, right, based upon that so 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 hands down um you know that kind of comes from the god is judge he gives laws or transgression and then god hands down his response to those transgressions and that handed down response is referred to as god's judgment right so that's where that's that's where this word is most at home in the law court family um of metaphors okay so the point for now is that the word judgment uh is most at home at least as it relates to our god talk when we invoke the idea of judgment vis-a-vis God, we're mostly nestled within that law court family of metaphors and images and thoughts and ideas. And so here's kind of how it works. Uh, God is judge. He stands over us in judgment. And let me just try to suggest maybe kind of how the neurons are firing in our minds when we think about god is judge you might even imagine um you know someone in a in a full-length black robe sitting behind a big wooden intimidating desk or the bench as we call it in our language um maybe even with gavel in hand i mean there may be all of these images like right, like going on in 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 your mind um and if we know anything about judges judging what we know is that when judges judge, they hand out punishments, right? That's, that's what we know. We don't have to unpack all this. We don't have to say all this. That's just, just kind of how the brain, right? Like all that happens when we talk about God and God's judgment. And then, again, not always in every case, but what most often emerges within our hearts, our minds, our imaginations is there is this sense of, let's just say it, fear And anxiety, there's a sense of dread, maybe, that accompanies all of that imagery. Okay, so let's back up and kind of run at that again. There's this cascade of effects. God talk is happening. We're talking God, faith, Jesus, and stuff. The word judgment is invoked, and almost automatically, what I just took some time to sort of painfully detail, break down, the word judgment is invoked, and and almost reflexively, all of that imagery goes, in our heads, and there's this sense of fear, dread, and anxiety, maybe even an irresistible sense of shame begins to cloud your mind in anticipation of almost certain shaming by God, because if there's anything that we're aware of, it is our shortcomings, our failings, and so on. Uh, and all of that, because that's what the word judgment means to us, in essence, the idea of judgment is connected to misbehavior and punishment. Those are like that's like the threefold um, components of the image of judgment. It's like when the, when the idea of judgment is invoked, it's like we back up one step and we go misbehavior leads to judgment leads to punishment. Like those three things like go together almost reflexively and automatically. Like misbehavior, judgment, punishment. Like Mo, Larry, Curly. It's like these three things you know that go together in every case somebody's not a fan of the three stooges i can tell all right Uh, oh you're a shimp fan molarian shimp that's the more preferred third stooge all right um so that is the common that is the common i suspect um word association when it comes to the english word judgment but get this the greek word in the new testament um that's most often translated into the english word judgment is the Greek word, well, we would pronounce it, I think, for, to try to be um, uh, proper for the Greek pronunciation, we would pronounce it crisis, K-R-I-S-I-S, which if you look at it on paper looks a lot like the English word crisis. except in Greek it's spelled with a K, in English it's spelled with a C. And in fact, this Greek word is the Greek word from which we derive the English word crisis. Again, the Greek word most often translated into English as judgment is the Greek word crisis. What is a crisis? And how is it that we could understand crisis as somehow similar to judgment? Think about it. A crisis, let me say it this way a crisis is a circumstance, ideally speaking, I admit. A circumstance in which I am called upon to think clearly and act wisely, right? Like, that's, that's a crisis. Like, we define a crisis when something in my consciousness stands up and says, okay, I got to dig deep here, I got to think clearly, and I got to act wisely, right? That's, that's crisis, again, in the best case scenario. That's crisis without the breakdown, without the emotional breakdown. All right, so now, suddenly, we have an image now that is not so much about punishment and this is, I think, the key, but is rather about recovery, right? So crisis is ultimately, if you, think, if, you think, um, uh, if you think about end game, end result, if you think about like where is this going, the idea of crisis invokes we're moving from here to a place of recovery, to a place of restoration, right? So if you think, and I'm going to use a word here, I don't mean it, but, but if, if you think teleologically, if you think about where is judgment going? Judgment is going to punishment, right? But if you think teleologically about crisis, where is crisis going? Crisis is going to recovery. Crisis is going to healing. Crisis is going to restoration. Does everybody see that? That's a big, big, big difference, okay? So in the end, though crisis and judgment share certain things in common, right, both crisis and judgment are unpleasant. Both crisis uh, and judgment involve the idea of bringing to light what may not have been previously seen. They have some other things in common: crisis and judgment. But in the end, in terms of where they're going, where the the idea points to, judgment points to uh, punishment. Crisis points toward recovery and restoration. And there is a huge difference between the two. Does everybody see what I mean? So, just even in word choice, in terms of in terms of translating these uh, these ancient spiritual ideas, there's some. Uh, some shovel work that, that uh, well, needs to be done. Okay, now, with that said, let's turn uh, and look at, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to or turn it on to 1 John chapter 4. So we're going to turn to old John the Beloved once again. And I say old here in this context because scholars uh, uh, tell us that that John wrote these letters very late in his, li- in his life. This is John the Beloved. Uh, The disciple who, at least according to him, the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, this John the Beloved, but apparently had written these letters, according to scholarship, very late in his life. He had had at least what we might call a generation to reflect upon his own experience with Christ and what God had done in Christ and in history and in the world and all that. So lots of time to reflect and also uh, interact with the Jesus communities that had been started in the years uh, following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So here's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We've got to come back to that one. We love because he first loved us. So listen to the Apostle John here thinking about, talking about the day of judgment. All right, so where he's going right to the core of like the threatening kind of, you know, ideas. Um, And not only in the context of talking about the day of judgment, not only does John describe the absence of fear, but look what he says. He almost goes further than describing merely the absence of fear. He's actually describing, well, what is translated for us as a sense of boldness uh, on the day of judgment. Wow. I mean, just, just wow. Not only the absence of fear, but when old Apostle John thinks about the day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, not only is he not afraid, he's bold. He's bold about it. Why? Because he says there is no fear in love. The word perfected, talks about being perfected in love, Uh, Again, here, it's the the Greek word telos, um, and it means the aim, the end, uh, the goal, like in the English word telescope. We use a telescope to see the ultimate end. So John can say all of this about judgment that sounds so, well, admittedly, it sounds radical, it sounds surprising, but also I hope you'll agree with me that it's beautiful and irresistibly attractive. He can say all this because he has been drenched in the ultimate telos of God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. So what John is saying is essentially what John said in the prologue to his, uh, what we call the Gospel of John, his account of Jesus' life. Uh, That no one has seen the Father, but Christ has revealed the Father to us in the full. So John is essentially saying here in, in his first epistle to the church in chapter 4, he's essentially saying the same thing. So there is, now there is no equivocating, no ifs, ands, or buts. He's saying essentially that if God became one of us, and he did, if God joined himself to our humanity, broadly speaking, and he did, if God subjected himself to the humility, humiliation of crucifixion unjustly at our hands, and he did. And if God did so without retaliation, and instead speaking our forgiveness in real time, in the moment, from the cross, and he did. And if God then raised Christ from the dead, destroying death itself on our behalf, and he did, then says John, all that remains for us is to realize and rest in this great love that has so thoroughly swept us up into the divine embrace of all humanity. That's what incarnation is about. That's what uh, the life of Christ is about. It is the sweeping up of all humanity. Into the, to the, the redemption of God. So John sees all this. And so he can say all these unexpected things about stuff like judgment and fear and punishment. Why? <laughs> because all of these previously threatening themes have now been eclipsed by the full self-revelation of God in Christ. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Is anybody picking up what I'm putting down? All right, one more, and then we're going to do some processing. Um, Here's one. Again, this is from the Apostle John, now from his account of the life of Christ. John chapter 9, verse 39. I love this. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. Now, if it stopped right there, you'd be free to imagine all kinds of stuff. Right, all kinds of scary stuff. But look what he says. I came into this world for judgment. Here it is. So that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Wow. Notice the image of judgment here. He, Jesus is describing what we might call a great inversion, right? So this is judgment. Those who are now confident that they see are revealed to be actually, in fact, blind. And at the same time, those who are despised as blind, looked down upon as blind, are made to see. And so for our purposes today, going back to my introductory statement, this is exactly what we crave. This is exactly what we yearn for. Jesus, I want to see. I want to really see, right? And everywhere where I think I see clearly, where in fact I'm blind, I want you to give me sight. Uh, right? I want you to. I want you to enable me to see everywhere I wait, everywhere I think I see, but in fact I'm blind. Give me real sight, right? Everywhere where I'm actually blind, give me real sight, right? So, so that's that's the idea. Jesus, I, I recognize that uh, simultaneously, in many ways, I'm groping in the darkness here. I want you to give me sight. This is exactly what we crave, and this is how Jesus describes judgment. I've come into the world for judgment, so that those who see will become blind, and those who are blind will see. So we have some ideas here, um, which, again, compared to some of our, um, I think, some of our anxiety-invoking uh, notions about judgment, we have some ideas here that are, in fact, uh, 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 challenging, refreshing, I hope. Um, so let's do one more thing and then a little more uh, reflection on this. Uh, back to metaphor families, okay? This is a fun, this is a fun exercise. Let's thread this idea of judgment in the broadest sense through several different metaphor families that are found in Scripture to describe God and the divine human relationship, and let's see what God's judgment might look like uh, in when placed into these contexts other than the law court context. Make sense? So we're going to take the idea of judgment, and we're going to put it into a different metaphor family that's that's the idea so let's start with this okay so think about the family family of metaphors what would it mean for a healthy loving father to make judgments among his household uh, now a healthy and loving father always and only wants what's best for all of his children right a healthy loving father always and exclusively wants what's absolutely best for the flourishing of all of his children and for everyone in the household, right? And so uh, the family of metaphors for God um, actually depend upon the idea of a healthy, loving uh, father. God is the father of all. He is wiser, more loving than anything any of us have ever experienced or can imagine. So with that said, let's imagine a loving father discovering, let's say, strife or conflict between his children some kind of injustice in his household how does a loving healthy father respond to that does that father make judgments absolutely that father makes judgments and then what does that father do that father proceeds from that point to pursue the flourishing of all the children in the household including uh well this is what's what's and I think this is actually pertinent, a healthy, loving, wise father understands that there is no one in the conflict who's absolutely 100% in the right. And there's no one in the conflict who's absolutely 100% in the wrong. A healthy, loving human father understands that. And you can, you can believe that uh, your heavenly father understands that as well. So just in the same way that a healthy, loving human father makes judgments and seeks the flourishing of all involved, in the same way our heavenly father makes judgments and seeks the flourishing of all involved. What about... Uh, what about the shepherd metaphor, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, so let's work with that image a little bit. Imagine a shepherd taking care of his sheep. He's looking out for them. He's making sure they're well-fed. They're protected from predators. They got plenty of water, plenty of grazing and all of that. Uh, And every now and then, he sorts through the herd uh, looking over each of the sheep very closely, inspecting them, inspecting their wool, checking their hooves, you know, checking their teeth. I don't know what all shepherds check. I'm just saying. Just imagine. It, okay, so I don't know. Go, just go with me. Um, so what's the shepherd doing in that process? He's making judgments. Is this sheep okay? Is it? How is this sheep doing? Is this sheep thriving? Is this sheep flourishing? Is this is this sheep, you know, he's, that shepherd is making judgments about that. Now, imagine if on that day, imagine if you're if on inspection day, Uh, you're one of those sheep under the care of that shepherd. Imagine if that's you, and you're somewhere in the herd, and you see Mr. Shepherd Man. You don't know his name because you speak sheep, not English. So he's Mr. Shepherd Man. And he's going through the sheep, and you're in the herd. And so you understand it's inspection day. And imagine on that day, you're covered with ticks. And they're itching, they're biting you, they're sucking you dry, and all that stuff. And you try as you might, you can't get all the ticks off of you. And you understand it's judgment day. Mr. Shepherd Man is coming through the herd making judgments. What are you going to do? You're going to jump to the front of the line. Please come and judge me, Mr. Shepherd Man. I, I need you to help me with these ticks, right? Because you understand that this shepherd is here to care for you and take care of you, and you desperately want Mr. Shepherd Man to make a judgment about your health or the lack of it right? So, so what I'm saying is if you take this idea of judgment and put it down into other family, do you see what I'm saying? The more we understand the character and the heart of God, the more we crave the judgments of God. What about a farmer? Same thing. Think about it. Does a farmer ever make judgments about his crops? Absolutely. All the time. And what is the father seeking? The father is seeking the flourishing of all of the crops. What about this? What about when we uh, move into the physician? Family of metaphors, right? Jesus said, uh, "The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do." So here, Jesus is describing himself in his ministry as a physician. This was actually the favorite in, in, in the early church when we have this in the historical record that this was the favorite image for the relationship between believers and Christ among in the earliest centuries. That Jesus is the physician, uh, and we are our, our need is analogous to an illness, that what Jesus is doing in our lives is healing us, spirit, soul, and mind, and everywhere. We're sick, and Jesus is our physician. That was the primary mode of thinking in the, in the first few centuries. It's unfortunate that we've drifted to more of a crime and punishment model, but in the earlier centuries, it wasn't that way. We inherited the crime and punishment dominant model uh, from the Reformation more recently. So, so what does it mean for a physician... To judge her patient. Well, obviously it's a needful and helpful and most desirable thing, right? Um, if you're sick, in misery, in pain, diseased, suffering in some way, what you crave is for a wise and learned physician to make a judgment about what's going on in your physical body. This is what you deeply desire is a capable physician to thoroughly examine your body and make a diagnostic judgment about your condition and then administer the appropriate healing therapy. Make sense? So so see what happens with judgment as you move it into these other um, metaphor families. You mix the metaphors and you make the idea of judgment portable uh, and place it within these different uh, families of imageries Then suddenly judgment comes into new light. And I would suggest... It's appropriate uh, light. And so the questions begin to pop up even at this point. So, so does that mean that judgment, that God's judgment is not a threat? Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, uh, God's judgment certainly is a threat. God's judgment is a threat to everything that's threatening you. God's ju- listen, love is opposed to everything that's opposed to love. And so God's judgment is a threat to everything everything that's threatening you both from within and from out, from without. You can know that your heavenly Father is looking and ready, willing and able to make judgments about your well-being continually. And everything threatening you from within, he's going to stand in judgment over. This is where you know you think about it the, and also in scripture very often the judgment of God would be uh, uh, mentioned with ideas like fire. What does fire do? Well, first of all, in the in the in the ancient world, you have to remember that fire is the sole source of light uh, when it's dark outside, right? So, so the first thing when when an ancient writer mentions fire, the first thing we got to think is from blindness to sight, right? So from darkness to light. The second thing about fire is fire is a purifying element. Fire burns away what's impure, and this is the idea. It's not. It's not. God's judgment associated with fire isn't about destruction. He's not a destroyer. He's a life giver. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you would have life uh, in all its fullness. And that's, how, that's what happens in a metalsmith's shop, for example. Fire is used to burn away the impurity so that the beautiful pure gold is what emerges. Uh, so, so so, judgment and fire even, even judgment and a sword Of course humans use swords To wreak destruction and wreak havoc But God's not a destroyer of human beings He's a life giver So when ju- judgment is mentioned and associated with a sword He's here to cut away the vines And the junk and the stuff that's holding you back The entanglements that are driving you bonkers God's judgment comes with a sword To cut all that stuff off of you So you can be free and be who you were created to be Come on somebody So So, so, how are we doing? All right, am I in the right church this morning? Okay. Uh, God's love is opposed to everything that's opposed to you. God's judgment is the action of God separating you from everything that is opposed to you, like a shepherd, like a physician, like a father. All right? So, when you get to that point and you understand the heart And the character, the nature of God, far be it from scary and threatening, it's like, come and judge me, Father. Make your judgments about my health and my well-being, about what's threatening me, both from within and without, and administer your healing therapy in my life. Would you come? Would you come? Your judgments are sweet, and I want them more and more. Is everybody tracking with that? Yeah. Yeah. So the more we come to understand the nature and the character of God the more we will actually crave the healing and life-giving judgment of God mm mm mm, mm. now just one one final thought and i know cuz cuz i well i know i know that some people try to combine multiple even opposing character traits to god into a single idea of what God is like. And so that, that goes like this. Yes, we know that God is love, but. And then there's a series, but God is also, you know, wrathful. Or yes, God is love, but God is also just. And in that case, justice is the retributive form of judgment. And I, I call that the love but theology. You got to get rid of the love but theology. I mean, you don't have to. You can keep it if you want. But I'm advising you to get rid of it. Okay, like, so the idea is like, um, actually, uh, and I don't mean this to be, to be cheeky, I mean this seriously, it's like the oriental idea of the yin and the yang. I think many people approach their understanding of God like that, that, that God, love is God's yin and justice is God's yang, and together, you know, it balances, um, it balances out. I think a lot of people, without using um, that kind of language, a lot of people basically function that way in terms of the image of God that they hold in their mind. And again, I want to suggest, I want to suggest that you leave that behind um, for a couple of that being that kaleidoscope, that kaleidoscope image of God with multiple potentially op- opposing attributes. I want to suggest that you leave that behind for a couple of reasons and then we'll be done. Uh, first is that this is not how the earliest Christian thinkers identified the nature of God. Um, the earliest Christian thinkers thought like the Apostle John about the nature of God. God is love, period. Not God is love and, you know, all this. Not God is, they didn't, the earliest Christian thinkers didn't think, well, yeah, there's this whole set of attributes. God is love, mercy, forgiveness, uh, patience, and God is uh, just and wrathful and retributive and punishing and as you get old, that that's not how the earliest Christian thinkers thought. They thought like the Apostle John: God is love. Period. And you can Google it. Even um, it's kind of fancy language, but you can write it down and, and Google it. It's it's referred to as the doctrine of divine simplicity, and it really was a, a serious conversation in in the church. And the idea there being, you can see, you can connect the language when, when that's how we get the phrase divine simplicity: God is love. God is. He is unified in his nature, not complex, but simple. God is one, and that one, that single, that singularity is love. That's the nature of God. And all of that is referred to with this phrase, uh, divine simplicity. The second reason that I want to suggest that you leave behind the kaleidoscope God image is this? Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul urge us to imitate God. So think about that. If you, not you, not anybody in this room, but if those other people, if those other people imagine God to be like a kaleidoscope of various traits love, mercy, forgiveness. Patience, etc. And also in the kaleidoscope are traits like retribution, wrath, violence, punishment, anger, etc. Right. If that's the way that you imagine God. The question becomes, how then in real time do you determine which set of attributes you're going to imitate? in a real life situation how do you make that determination because by definition a circumstance that calls for forgiveness has the same qualities as a circumstance that calls for retributive justice are we tracking by definition forgiveness is to forgive the unforgivable And, simultaneously, retributive justice is to retaliate against what is unforgivable uh, with equal voracity, right? So what's it going to be? And how do you make that choice? How do you make that determination? If I have, by nestling retributive retaliation into my kaleidoscopic God image, then what's the basis for choosing which of those traits I imitate in a given situation? By the way, I just want to say, parenthetically, this could explain why it is that many people, not anybody in this room, but this could explain why many people uh, seem to be making little progress in spiritual formation because if the God that I am increasingly imitating is really just another version of what I've always been, this mass of contradictions, then I'm really never going to be transformed. I'm just moving closer and closer to what I already am. spiritual formation you know what i mean by that the process of conforming to the image of christ we use different language to say it the ancient church called it theosis becoming like god and it comes from the writings of the apostle paul and others here's a good example second corinthians 3 he says now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there's freedom and all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. I'm going I'm to give that a redneck translation. Um, what Paul is saying here is true about worship for better or worse. What he's saying is that as we, in the act of worship, as we encounter the divine, and, and, and to be more precise, as we encounter our image of the divine, Paul is saying we're being transformed into that. You become like what you worship. So if you're worshiping the kaleidoscope, then you're becoming more and more like the kaleidoscope. But as we learn, to worship the pure, simple, I don't mean simple, simplistic. I mean simple as in unified God who is love. Who is forgiveness. Who is mercy. God is love. As we draw near in worship to the one true God who is the singularity of love. Then again, according to Paul, we're transformed into that image more and more. From glory to glory. How are we doing? Everybody happy? All right, let's pray. Uh